Hello. We begin this week's episode with a musical composition by Jim Sangster. When you run away from Gallifrey Heading to Amsterdam And when Omega is taunting ya Hiding in Amsterdam I can't wait until the Ergon Frills Made up of eggs and ham Why does Nyssa keep us learning? That's why Tegan is returning So until that day we may Keep on running from Gallifrey Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This week we are looking at a controversial book, Ark of Infinity. This is the fifth of ten straight Peter Davison novelizations out of a run of ten straight Peter Davison novelizations put out by Target across 1983 and 1984. Next week is the final book of 1983 and the sixth of ten novelizations from Peter Davison's era. It is The Five Doctors. Remember, I am looking for brief audio reminiscences from you to go in one of my Five Doctors episodes. There will be more than one. The story is that big and that important. Gotta have multiple episodes. But I'm looking for audio recordings between two and five minutes, reflecting on some aspect of The Five Doctors, either on television or the book, or anything related that you wish to discuss, and I may feature it on the program. I say Ark of Infinity is controversial because I am a member of the Doctor Who Target Facebook group. This is a book that comes up every couple of weeks as someone new to the group points out that this is one of the least favorite Target covers of theirs. Obviously, everybody has different takes on the cover and different preferences. I think there are two issues, if I had to guess, as to why people don't like this cover. Number one, it is another in a long run of photographic covers, which cover pretty much the first half of the Peter Davison novelizations. This one features a scene from part three of the TV story, and it could be considered a spoiler, but it's not just the photograph on the cover I think that bothers people. It is probably the color of the book, which is sort of a mustard yellow. Now, I grew up in the 1970s. My father had many blazers and suits of this color, doesn't bother me really. And there are other Target books that have this color spine. Reign of Terror, although I don't have my copy in front of me at the moment, springs to mind. Possibly The Massacre as well. But in that case, the color is pretty much confined to the spine and back cover. Here it takes up the entirety of the front cover as well. It is a bold color choice, and I really have no problem with it. 
again, this podcast is more concerned with what's inside the book than what the cover looks like, and we're going to break that down aplenty over the next 90 minutes or so. My guest this week is longtime friend of mine, Bill Evenson, and also host of the Frankenstein Minute podcast. We are going to talk about Ark of Infinity eventually, but I do talk to Bill quite a bit first about the Frankenstein Minute podcast and the mechanics of doing a show like that. And Bill and I both being American, we are going to touch on several matters of interest to American pop culture. Yes, this is not a Doctor Who literature episode without an in-depth discussion of baseball from the mid-1980s, so buckle up and fasten your seatbelts. I've also been introduced, at long last, belatedly, to Pluto TV. That is a free streaming service. I believe it's only available here in the States. It does have channels devoted to many popular American TV shows, dramas, comedies, game shows from across all eras. And they do have a channel devoted to classic Doctor Who, which I believe streams in accordance with BritBox. They do not show the entire classic run. They do not have every episode for every Doctor, but they do go in roughly chronological order. And as far as I can tell... They go through the entire series, well, the episodes that they show for the classic series, in about four days or so. What I've been doing is once each night turning on Pluto TV, either in front of my television set or sometimes on my phone, and I just watch through the end of whatever classic Doctor Who story happens to be on at that exact moment. So, we're going to take a short break, and then when I come back, we're going to discuss whatever episode is streaming on Pluto TV right now as I record this. This is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersberg, and your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Keep turning the pages. So on Pluto TV right now, or 15 minutes ago, was part one of Seeds of Death. I joined it in progress, probably at about minute number six or seven, and I watched through to the end of the half hour. Pluto does stream the episodes in half hour format, so there are commercial breaks peppered throughout. My daughter happened to walk into the room as I was watching the last five minutes, and she was trying to figure out which character was Doctor Who. She thought it was Ronald Lee Hunt. I pointed out that Patrick Troughton's grandson was in one of her favorite TV series, The Queen's Gambit, but she doesn't have much exposure to Patrick Troughton directly. Unfortunately, that's probably my fault. She was interested in the special effects, and when I explained that this was shot live to tape in 1969, she thought the special effects looked pretty good for their era. Here's what I said about Seeds of Death Part 1 when I watched it as part of my Twitter pilgrimage, my Doctor Who pilgrimage, hashtag DR Who pilgrimage, back in February 2021. Quote, January 1969, and the first Doctor Who serial to try and consciously evoke the visuals of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Michael Ferguson is back for his first story since The War Machines, and boy, does he have some tricks for us. The monsters are only shot from their own POV. While the voices and death ray effects make it obvious who they are, this trick works, as nervous humans look directly into the camera. In extreme close-up, I might add today. 
Osgood, Harry Taub, is built up as a huge character and is promptly killed off in minute number seven. And yes, I turned on about a minute before his character was killed, which is why I say that I turned it on in about minute six or so. Back to my tweets. The script, unfortunately, is a bit dull. The TARDIS doesn't land until halfway through, and our travelers are mostly sidelined during a long debate between Professor Eldred and some guy whose name appears to be Commando Rando. Now, imagine having to watch this in movie format. And that's what I wrote almost two and a half years ago. Obviously, when I watch Seeds of Death Now, I know every beat of the plot, and I'm not watching it anymore to see how the plot unfolds. I'm watching it for its style and tone. I always enjoy the TARDIS team combination of Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury. And I just love Michael Ferguson's direction. Watching it tonight, it struck me the way that he would frame characters. There's a scene where Miss Kelly is shot from behind an opaque glass screen, so you can only see her in silhouette. When Ronald Lee Hunt enters Professor Eldred's museum, he is framed from very deep background in the doorway. There's lots of extreme close-ups where characters are speaking straight to camera, or where cameras are following characters around the studio at what appears to be a remove of three or four inches. The intimacy of the camera in relation to the characters is probably one of the reasons why I love the 1960s episodes so much. Something is lost, I believe, with the animations, where the camera is much further back from the action. I would love to see animations done in the style of the actual 1960s productions, with long takes and only a few camera angles and extreme close-ups when possible. But of course, this is why I am not in charge of producing or directing or animating the animated releases. I'll do another one of these next week, whichever episode Pluto has on next Saturday night when I am recording for next week's episode, The Five Doctors. Other news, John Romita Sr. has passed away. He was my Spider-Man artist. As far as I can recall from the late 70s, I got into Spider-Man via reruns of the 1966 cartoon series and the newspaper strips, and I believe John Romita Sr. was the newspaper artist at the time. One last bit of interest before we get to this week's interview with Bill Evenson. I was yesterday years old when I learned that Better Call Saul, one of my favorite TV series of all time, and which I've discussed quite a bit over the life of this podcast, is that two of the directors of early Better Call Saul episodes actually have Doctor Who connections. The director of episode number three, season one, episode three from 2015, was Terry McDonough, who also directed An Adventure in Space and Time, and the director of Season 1, Episode 4, Colin Buxey, was the ex-husband of Verity Lambert. Fascinating to see connections like that between my two favorite shows, well, two of my favorite shows. Meanwhile, this week, we have a long conversation with Bill Evenson. We have my review of Ark of Infinity, the novelization, and again, I am reviewing the text of the book and not just the front cover. Let's get to it. The vervoids are probably the best dirty joke in Doctor Who. They're hermaphroditic plants. A lot of plants are. So there you but go. That's it's based on science. No, they'll ship anything. There are probably 11 and handle shippers out there. You just have to drill a hole where his mouth is and you're all set. You know yeah. he needs the room. I've seen it in pictures. I'm not saying you're not a fan. I'm saying you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Doctor Who gives a fuck. A drunken Doctor Who podcast for the end times. You 
are listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages! So, Bill Evenson, welcome back. You were last on the show during my episode filmed, or recorded, I should say, not filmed, this is not a live show. My episode recorded at Galley One, you and Barsky and I had a rather freewheeling conversation that I plunked into the middle of one of my episodes. Let me guess, did baseball come into it? I think it did, actually. Barsky was wearing a Boston Bruins jersey, which segued oh, into the Red Sox, which segued into the 1986 Mets, which Barsky brought up himself, I want to point oh, out. Well. Yep. And then before that, you were on this show for episode 24, The Web of Fear, and episode 45, The Sontaran Experiment. So every book that you are on represents a TV story that's a little bit worse than the one before. And this week, episode 80... <laughs> It's Arc of Infinity. So what I want to do... So you're saying Web of Fear is worse than Santaran Experiment? No, no. Web is better. Santaran's oh, a little bit worse. And Arc of Infinity in fandom estimation. I like Arc of Infinity for sentimental reasons. It was my first proper story. But each story is successively worse than the one before, if you look at the last DWM rankings. Yes, I in fact I haven't, but I did look at. Um, remember that website that used to do the dynamic rankings? Maybe you don't. Dewhurst Designs has a website. Well, they don't anymore, so don't look for it. It's not. It's not there. But I found the archive uh, version of it, and yeah, Arc of Infinity is always in the bottom quarter. It's not like um, it's not Twin Dilemma, but it's also not Genesis of the Daleks. What are you gonna do? There's a very wide middle range, and if you're going to divide the series into tiers, from greatness to awful, awfulness, Arc of Infinity is probably in the second or third tier from the bottom. It's not going to be on many people's top 10 or top 20 or top 50 lists, which is interesting because I'm trying to come up with my top 60 for the 60th okay. anniversary. And they're doing the whole series, I take it? I would even include the new series, so... I have to ask, what's the ratio? Do I want to include 50 classic and 10 new? Do I want to do 30-30? Do I want to do 40-20? Or do I just let the chips fall where they may and see how many new series has come out? I, 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 could, I, I don't know if I could even do it because I don't rank them against each other. I don't rank classic series against new series really in my head. It's like comparing uh, you know, Star Wars to Star Wars. <laughs> I just don't I don't think of it that way. There's episode four, or as we call it, Star Wars. Then yeah, a right. somewhat close second is Empire. And then you're Rogue done. Rogue One is probably the Rogue One is probably on about maybe a step or two beneath Empire, and then it's a long way into fourth place, and then everything else sort of gangs up at the bottom. Yeah, I don't know I don't get the Rogue One love. I I I don't know I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I'm watching it wrong. I'm sure there must be. Do I have to have the subtitles on? Do I have to turn the brightness up? I'm doing something wrong. We are Doctor Who fans. We have all had run-ins with Richard Franklin at conventions. Rogue <laughs> One is the Star Wars movie where Richard Franklin's character is killed on screen. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yep, he just came and sat next to us at our table in, in the bar at Li Who one year. We were all like. Nobody talked to him because we did. It was so odd. Felt kind of bad about it later, but 
was that the year it was uh the saturday after trump won the election and oh god was it richard franklin opened his panel by talking about how trump had tapped into some primal force in american politics and he was the the way of the future and Yikes. the entire room just went ice cold <laughs> yeah funny a doctor who convention in new york that didn't respond well to that it's odd well, Imagine Suffolk that. County is the uh, deep south of New York. Suffolk true. County is not where George, not where George Santos is from, <laughs> but it's not too far east. Is he in jail yet? No, he's been indicted, but he's still serving oh, in Congress good. and still tweeting away. And uh, good for him. But what I really want to talk about with you, Bill, <laughs> this week is not George Santos, who fortunately is probably an obscure mystery to the vast majority of my listeners. I do not want to talk about Richard Franklin. I do want to talk about Andor, the prequel series to Rogue One, which is probably the best bit of Star Wars media since 1977. But we can talk about that a little bit later. I want to talk to you about Frankenstein because I did some research. And yes, nothing is more dangerous than a podcast host who does his own research. I really should hire an intern for this. You are now coming up on the fifth anniversary yeah. Of the Frankenstein Minute podcast. And you are only within the opening three minutes of movie number four, or as you called it in the first episode of the season, Frankenstein for the Voyage Home. <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, it doesn't really apply too well here. Not really, it doesn't really work as a Voyage Home. I don't know. But neither was, neither was Star Trek four, really. They eventually went home. Or I guess they started out going home. They were voyaging to our home, 1986. No, our home. It was a very meta title. <laughs> there you go. Although on a recent episode of the Darren Mooney podcast, The 250, where he tackles the top 250 films on the IMDb plus Star Trek movies, he pointed out that Voyage Home is a reverse time travel movie. It's 1960s Star Trek traveling ahead to 1986 rather than 24th century Star Trek traveling back to the 1980s. It was contrasting Gene Roddenberry's almost hippie idealism with Spock as a counterculture figure to corporate San Francisco of the 1980s, which I would point out is the same decade that brought us the most corporate rock song of all time, We Built This City. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That classic. That It, it didn't... Um... What's her name? Who sings? Who, who's in? Uh, why can't I think of the lady from Jefferson Airplane now? That was my mother's former classmate, Grace Slick. Grace Slick. Yeah, she actually retired. She looked at, at We Built This City and said, yeah, I'm out. I'm done. She yeah. hung around for another year and she did the theme, the love theme from the movie Mannequin, <laughs> which was on the radio on an infinite loop for most of 1987. Okay. I don't remember that. I'm sure if I heard it, I'd know it. Nothing's going to stop us now? Nothing's going to stop us now. Yeah, you're right. I would sing I it for you, but one. the cat wouldn't like that. I think that was Starship's, uh, well, I should say, yeah, that was Starship's last hurrah. Actually, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I remembered after that, she got back together with Jefferson Airplane for a brief period of time, too. That would have been the 20th anniversary of Woodstock, 1989, very shortly after Mannequin came out. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was the anniversary. So the point is, the Frankenstein Minute, you devote one episode 
and you do your show once a week to one minute of the film. Yes. Frankenstein 4, The Ghost of Frankenstein, is, depending on who you ask in the episode that I heard, it's either 66 minutes long or 67 minutes long. This means that you are devoting almost a year and a half of your life <laughs> to one movie. Yep. And the episode that I heard where you had my producer and next week's guest, David Barsky, as your guest last week for minute two of Frankenstein for the voyage home, you guys discussed the entire film from stem to stern. You were discussing the credits. You were discussing the actor. You discussed everything but the fact that Ralph Bellamy, 50 years later, co-starred in a film with Jason Alexander, which means that Seinfeld is now part of the Frankenstein cinematic universe. Yep. But, after that one episode, I feel as if I know Frankenstein for the voyage home better than any other Frankenstein. What else do you have to discuss in the other 66 episodes and how do you keep your show fresh? That's a really good question. So what helps is if the movie is uh, sort of fast moving, um, then you get a minute where something happens and the next minute something else happens, uh, you know, or they move locations frequently. Um, because there's always something on the screen to talk about. Um, we've only had one episode where we simply couldn't think of anything at all. It was minute 56 of the last movie, Son of Frankenstein. It was just a guy running around. And so we did a comparison of all the minute 56s for all the movies. And that mm. ended up being an hour-long episode. So I don't know if people enjoyed <laughs> it or not. But uh, yeah, usually... There's by the time you watch it, you know, by the time you get there, there's always something to talk about. Uh, and if there isn't, then we usually digress like on like on so many podcasts. I wouldn't know anything about digression <laughs> as we are here in minute number 11 of not talking about Arc of Infinity. Yeah, right. Of Arc of what? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what it feels like when you're watching the episode. I feel like I've been here for infinity minutes. Yep. But I have a logistical question for you. Okay. Do you start at second zero and go to 59? Or do you start at second one and go to the next zero when you're when you're uh, dissecting the film by minute? I The first minute starts at zero, zero, and it goes to one, zero, zero. And then the next minute starts at one, zero, zero, and goes to two, zero, zero. But that means that you're covering the same second twice every week i must have said it wrong then <laughs> you're covering the zero zeros you're covering 1.00 at the end of episode one and the beginning of episode two no we go the, we go to the end of one zero zero in in minute one and then we start yeah i guess you're right it is technically the first second of the next minute yeah you're right there's no overlap so you could really do the Frankenstein second, and that would get away from the overlap. Probably could, yeah. Probably should, to be honest. There's so much to talk about. And, you know, we're going to run out of movie because there's only like eight of these movies. There's only enough movies to cover us into our old age. You have the Hammer Frankensteins, and you have Kenneth Branagh's 1995 Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yep. There's more than that, too. You also could do a whole episode on Booberry, the Frankenstein, oh, Frankenberry, <laughs> Frankenberry, Frankenberry, the breakfast cereal. Yep, absolutely. Um, actually, um, then there's the Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. 
There are all kinds That's of like true. low budget or or you know B pictures like Dracula versus Frankenstein. I mean, Frankenstein's have been been in the public domain now for a while. So as long as your monster doesn't look like Boris Karloff, anybody can make a Frankenstein movie, and so many do. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say there's the Hotel Transylvania series mm-hmm. with one. Adam Sandler as a vampire, and Frankenstein is always one of the chorus of Adam Sandler's monster pals in those films. Okay. But I remember Frankenstein was a character in Marvel Comics, as was Dracula. I think they can't use the Wolfman because that's Universal's property. But they can have werewolves. But that was made in the early 30s. That'll be public domain in about five or six years. Yeah, Wolfman is 41. Oh, 41. Okay, I thought it was 30s. Yeah, it's surprising that it takes took them that long to make the Wolfman, but yeah. Wolfman, which also stars a young Ralph Bellamy, years before he was co-starring with the, the Jason Alexanders and Eddie uh, Murphys of the world. Actually, the movie we're on now, Ghost of Frankenstein, has Ralph Bellamy from The Wolfman, um, Avalon Anchors from The Wolfman, and the monster is played by Lon Chaney Jr., otherwise known as The Wolfman. Oh, not to mention Bela Lugosi from The Wolfman. So yeah, they just rolled right into the next movie. They were churning them out back then. Now, infamously, when Francis Ford Coppola directed Bram Stoker's Dracula in the early 90s, which has very little to do with the Bram Stoker source material, there was a novelization of the film Bram Stoker's Dracula, which boggles the mind because... It's a movie based on a novel, but you're novelizing the film script and you're calling the novelization Bram Stoker's Dracula, even though it has very little in common with Bram Stoker's actual (laughs) Dracula from the 1890s, which begs the question, is there a novelization for Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? And if so, who would be the person to write it? I have no idea if there is one. I, I knew about the Bram Stoker's Dracula one. Uh, but my answer is always Alan Dean Foster, because I assume he, he probably already did it, and they put somebody else's name on it. He wrote George Lucas's novelization of Star Wars. He wrote Gene Roddenberry's novelization of Star Trek, The Motionless Picture. Yep, yep. Um, I was also going to mention another guest on our show uh, from the week before was Dino Stamatopoulos, who created a an animated series called Frankenhole. But that's not funny enough, so he called it Mary Shelley's Frankenhole. So I think there's oh. a there's a history. Yeah. You've had some very interesting guests on the Frankenstein Minute over the years. You had Wallace Matthews, who yeah. was the boxing reporter for New York Newsday when I grew up. I was reading his columns on Mike Tyson, Larry Holmes in the mid to late 80s when I was a much bigger boxing fan than I am now. And you got a sports reporter from New York Newsday a very right-wing tabloid on your show <laughs> talking about talking about Frankenstein. It's one of the greatest cross-pollinations. I can tell you, he's not right-wing. He got thrown off Twitter for threatening to punch some Republican. I can't remember, but he's definitely not right-wing or Wallace. Hopefully George Santos. Uh, somebody like that, I think. He, um, we didn't have him on this last... So we generally have just have our guests on at the end and beginning of the movie when it's just credits, so then we can talk about whatever. And we, we kind of skipped him this time. And he emailed me right away and said, 
that we got to have him on to talk about the Wolfman. So, so yeah, he'll be back. That's great. Yep. Now, trying to segue into Doctor Who while not talking about Arc of Infinity just yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I was texting with Barsky this morning, I was joking that I should create a podcast called the Arc of Infinity Minute. It's a 117-page novelization. We could do a 117-podcast episode cycle covering the book page by page. That would take a little over two years. But bearing in mind, you have a lot of – so, for example, page 78 is yeah. blank. So that blank. episode, we could just talk about whatever we want. We'll have Barsky on. Some, right. Some of the chapters end in the middle of the page. So, for example, page 41 is a quarter page of text mm-hmm. in Arc of Infinity, the book, and page 42 is blank. So that would be a week and a half of just talking to you and me and Barsky talking about how the 1986 Mets humiliated the 1986 <laughs> Boston Red Sox in game six and seven of the World Series at Chase Stadium in Queens. I might not be alive by the end of the recording, but we could certainly do it. <laughs> it might, must have been a heck of a blowout because the, there was nobody left but the Twins to win the World Series the following year. Well, yes, half of the Mets were either on the disabled list from partying too hard on the flight back from Houston after the league championship series or were in rehab from partying too hard on the flight back from Houston after the National League championship series. Nice. Nice. Well, uh, Kent Herbeck from the Twins was known for smoking and drinking in the clubhouse. So it was a different time back then. One, One hopes, I guess. Two years after that World Series, your star pitcher, Frank Viola, wound up back home on the Mets, where he toiled in much more obscurity for two and a half seasons. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't remember that. See, I never, all I remember, I don't remember the, what, uh, where they go. See, in the early 80s, growing up in a suburban subdivision, which had virtually no crime because of the way the subdivision was built, my father decided that we needed a burglar alarm installed. So he hired a local contractor to put a burglar alarm system in our tiny little suburban subdivision ranch house, dead smack in the center of the subdivision. So if there was going to be crime, they weren't going to our house. We were surrounded by rows and rows of identical houses. But the guy who owned the business, who did most of the work, had been on the baseball team at St. John's in Queens the year before, where he and Frank Viola were both on the pitching staff. And my father happened to have a 1982 Yankees-Twins game on Channel 11, the Yankee station at the time, WPIX. And both teams were so bad that year. I think the Yankees and Twins both lost the same game at the same time. <laughs> but Frank Viola was pitching, and this guy who owned this burglar alarm agent said, hey, that was, my, that was my teammate at St. John's. And he sat down to watch the game with us for a while, rather than nice. put in the burglar alarm. <laughs> No rush. Never minding talking about Frank Viola, who almost certainly is not listening. And if you are, Frank, I'll have you on the show, gladly. But is there a Doctor Who – this is a serious question. Okay. Uh, the first serious question after 20 minutes. Is there a Doctor Who book or TV episode that would benefit from the minute-by-minute podcast hook the way that you're doing for the Frankenstein films? Boy, that's a good question. Um. I w- I, I'm not going to be able to answer with regards to a book. But like I said, if there's a lot of moving around to different locales, my first thought is uh, Dalek Master Plan, uh, minute by minute. But that would take how many years? That would probably take, I guess it would only take five or six years. 24 times 12. That's uh, 
264 minutes. That's a, that's a good five-year cycle right there. There you go. I think we could do it. Of course, you can't see anything because it doesn't exist. But sometimes it does. Every once in a while, it would get real exciting when, the, when an existing episode turned up. Because I think there's three, right? If it takes one, if it takes one minute for a loose cannon caption to scroll across the bottom of the screen, you can discuss the font. You can discuss the 1990s computer program that generated the scrolling caption. Yep, exactly. Yeah. No, episodes two, five, and ten do exist, but I was going to say, Mythmakers Part Four, and also Dalek's Master Plant Part Twelve or Episode Twelve, those are two of the most dark, yeah, downbeat, tragic. Hartnell serials of the 60s both of those I think and they're only 24 minutes you're talking half a year out of your life both of those might be fertile ground for a minute by minute podcast especially because Mythmakers starts off as a comedy and the first five minutes of part four are a comedy and then all of a sudden it goes dark and Dalek's master plan too you have this two episode comedy cycle with the meddling monk clowning around the great pyramid with the Daleks and then all of a sudden, after that, you go back to the planet Kemble and terrible things happen and uh, Gene Marsh's character dies in horrific fashion. So I think yeah, the last parts of Mythmakers and Dalek's Master Plan might be a good minute-by-minute show. Yeah, like I said, although the other thing is, too, if since they don't exist, there's all kinds of different versions of them. People animate these things all the time. There's always an animation. There's probably, I would guess, you know, multiple animations for each of the ones you just mentioned, I would think. Having not checked. <laughs> There's the loose cannon, telesnap recons. They're the gold standard. There are a lot of 2D animations on YouTube. Some are better than others. You have the audiobook version, which I think is narrated by um, Peter Purvis. Okay. You have the novelization audiobook, which is alternately narrated by Peter Purvis and Gene Marsh. Oh, is it? That's interesting. Yeah. With the Nicholas Briggs as the voice of the Daleks. Okay. Wow. You know who does the Ark of Infinity? Not to talk about Ark of Infinity, but you know who does the audiobook for that? Ark of who? <laughs> it's Jeffrey Beavers, known for his work on Ark of Infinity. Let's see, who did he play in Ark of Infinity? Know, he wasn't in Ark of Infinity, right? In fact, Jeffrey Beavers played two characters in the Doctor Who universe. He was a unit sergeant in Ambassadors of Death, and then he wow. was the master. Yeah. This is not a master's story. It is an Omega story, but Ian Collier, who did survive enough to do some... Ian Collier reprised the role of Omega in some big finishes, but I think he was passed away by the time they got to the audiobook novelization. That makes sense. Yeah. I gotta say, Beavers, I did listen to the uh, audiobook, and uh, he's very good. But he's old, and he sounds like an old man. So when he uh, does Peter Davison, sometimes it sounds more like William Hartnell to me. But well, Davison was doing Hartnell for portions of his run, so that actually yeah, fits. Exactly. Yeah, I noticed it uh, in Arc of Infinity. I had it on yesterday, I think it was, and he did he did say something to someone and then end with "hmm." It happened somewhere in there. I can't remember where. where. It was probably talking to Nissa because he's not really nice to her in this one all that much. <laughs> it's funny because everybody seems to love that pairing, Davison and Sutton. It's a great pairing. They could actually have really gotten a good um, two two hander going there. But the, the point I was originally going to make, though, is that whenever I am reading 
a bit of the novelization and I'm reading one of the doctor's lines for one of my episodes, I find myself tempted to do that Peter Davison where he cracks his voice in outrage on the high notes. And I can't, I can't quite do it. It's a particular skill that he has that I don't know how to imitate. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I wonder if he can still do that because his voice has changed a little bit. Or is it more easy for him now, maybe? Yeah, your your voice tends to get a little higher pitched and weaker as you yeah. get older. Like Elton John can no longer hit the high notes. Yep. John Leeson, once he hit a certain age, sounded very different as canine than he did back in the 70s. Yep. And Jeffrey Beavers, as you say, now sounds more like William Hartnell than uh, the master. Not to denigrate anybody, but I thought it was odd that Big Finish chose to make one of the actors in this group um, well, Sarah Sutton, they had took her character and had her age and then she rejoined the group. So the, I, I think you even mentioned it the other day on your podcast, but in big finish, everybody stayed the same age, but Nissa got older for some reason. And it was an odd choice because Sarah Sutton's voice to me sounds exactly the same as it used to. And I can't say that. I don't think about anybody else in that TARDIS crew. So <laughs> yeah. Well, Matthew Waterhouse is now presumably pushing 60 and is still playing a teenager when he does big finish carol ann ford when she's in her late 70s still plays a teenager yep yep that's what what can you do and then uh oh what's his name fraser hines actually he's really good he sounds he sounds good and he's playing the second doctor as well so he's playing a grown man in his late 40s as opposed to playing a young scotsman in his early 20s right right you heard, I'm sure, that Fraser Hines is doing a novelization of Evil of the Daleks. I did. But it's a novelization of the Evil of the Daleks rerun from the summer of 1968, as opposed to the original airing in 67, which has already been novelized by a friend of this podcast, John Peel. Yep, this is a totally different story. So it'll it'll be interesting to see where it goes with it, because it's a completely different take. What is it? Is there about uh, maybe two minutes of extra stuff, I think? There's going to be an extra subplot, which if you look at the way the extra new subplot is described, it could be a preview of The Mind Robber, which is one of the next stories made after. Because what's interesting is that Wheel in Space, where that rerun begins, is the last televised story of season five but it was the third to last story produced. So they immediately, the Dominators, the week after they finished, and then Mind Robber, the week after they finished uh, Dominators. Hello, Fraser. So you have this rerun, which actually takes place in the middle of the season five production block to which Dominators and Mind Robber belong, which is why when the Doctor walks out of the TARDIS at the beginning of Dominators, he immediately refers back to the rerun that he has just finished. Yeah. Mentally projecting it's interesting that uh, that they felt the need to even do that. It, it kind of reminds me of when you, you know when we were kids, the sitcoms would always have at least one episode that was just all memories from previous episodes. You know, Jack and two Chrissy part, and a two-part flashback episode. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's a flashback episode. Tootie finds a photo album in Miss Garrett, <laughs> Mrs. Garrett's attic, and then all the yeah, Facts of Life girls. Hey, remember the time that Joe got drunk or remember the time that uh, yep. Natalie dated a boy? Yeah, that sort of thing. 
for for growing pains, it was the garage sale episode. They did two weeks of flashbacks based on garage sale items in the C versus garage. Two weeks, man, that's pushing it. It was the worst two weeks of my life. <laughs> Wonder if you could get a whole season out of it, you know? Well, Trial of a Time Lord is uh, fourteen weeks of flashback. Although, of course, it was flashback to stuff we hadn't seen yet. It was not a fourteen-week rerun that's true. season. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think the comic strip, for better or worse, did that because once Lynn Johnston stopped doing new episodes, she started going back and republishing modified old strips from the late 70s and early 80s. And did they have any kind of wraparound thing that explained that? No idea. I was no longer subscribing to newspapers by then, so oh, I was okay. no longer reading for better or worse. Okay. Hmm. I can't even remember what for better or worse is. <laughs> is it just a. It was. Like a family. In Newsday, you can ask Wallace Matthews next time he's on your show. Right. On the Newsday comics pages, it was always the second strip right under Peanuts. So it was three pages of comics, three pages of comic strips. Peanuts was always the top strip on page one, and for better or worse, was right underneath. Okay. And then you had the one-panel strips centered off at the bottom of the page. So one page had the far side, which was a one-panel strip. One page had Ziggy, which was a one-panel strip. And then on the third page, you had a crossword and a, and a jumble. Okay. All right. This all but sounds for better or worse was always the number two cartoon in the Newsday comics hierarchy. If you're growing up in suburban Long Island or New York City in the late eighties. I I bet it was probably pretty similar here. It it sounds similar, but I can't couldn't say for sure. I think the father was a dentist, the mom was a housewife, and there were two kids and there was a dog, and the dog drowned in a heroic story arc saving somebody. Oh and they got like God. a month worth of strip out of the dog dying in the middle of the comic strip. Because for better or worse, it took place in real time. So Peanuts, they stayed at, you know, eight years old forever. But for better or worse, they aged every year. Okay. So the guy who was a little boy in the early 80s. Did little Abner do to that? His girl, that was long gone by the time <laughs> I came on the scene. Yeah. No, but the last, for better or worse, December 31st, 1999, is the boy proposing to his girlfriend as the ball drops. Nice. Followed by two weeks of hilarity when she drops the engagement ring down the sink and they have to retrieve it with the <laughs> with, with plumber's tools. I'm not making this up. If you travel back in time to January 2000 and read for better or worse, you will literally see two weeks of trying to fish the engagement ring out of the sink. Wow. Yeah, that's like a that's a bottle episode. That's what they now call a bottle episode, right? Where <laughs> where you don't spend a lot of money, or in this case, a lot of imagination. Take a few weeks off. Yeah, I don't blame them. If you can get away with it. Arc of Infinity. When did you first see it? Boy, that's a good question. So. I, uh, you're one of these people, you can say when, when you saw stuff and what I, I heard you last week talking about how you watched part two of this and then part, or part two of Arc of Infinity, I believe was one of your first episodes or was that your first full episode or your first cliffhanger? That's right. It was, I, I watched the last 10, 15 minutes and it was my first cliffhanger. My first full episode start to finish would have been Enlightenment part one. Okay. Uh, I have no idea. I don't remember that kind of stuff. So the only thing, only time I know for sure that I saw it was I did the pilgrimage in 2003. Um, I was just getting back into Doctor Who and they announced that it was coming back. So I thought, well, this is a good idea. I should watch the whole series in order. Um, and I remember I really liked it. 
this is the thing that I, I don't know how we approach this this topic because you have sentimental uh, sentimental attachment to it. I don't, but I still enjoyed it, and I and I feel like almost embarrassed about it because if you look around on the yeah, well, like we talked about, it's it's near the bottom. It's um, of the fifth Doctor stories. It's above uh, Time Flight. And that's about it. I don't know if there's anything else that that goes below Arc of Infinity in in the opinion polls, but I've always I've always enjoyed it. And I think one of the things that happened strangely was when I got done watching it. It was that same month or whatever. Big Finish put out their Omega uh, um, story. (laughs) <laughs> they did what master was Collier, one of them yes. yeah ian collar and um nicola bryant's husband wrote it nev fountain wrote it yes and uh, as he should be known nicola bryant's husband that seems like the right thing um <laughs> and i just i was blown away by it i thought it was so clever I, i'll spoil it for people who haven't listened to a 20 year old audio but that, like the end of this episode uh omega is played by Peter Davison because he has finally taken over that uh, the doctor's body or his appearance anyway, or his biog data or his whatever they're calling it. Uh, in, in Omega, the first 20 minutes or something, you think it's the doctor. You've probably heard it, right? Or maybe not. I have heard it. I barely remember it. Like the first 20 minutes, the doctor is just, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. He's on some planet and he's trying to do some good for people or whatever. And then suddenly the TARDIS lands and Peter Davison comes out. Turns out you've been following Omega all along and didn't realize it. And I thought that was super clever. Yeah. So now I wrecked it. (laughs) But but I think it colored my perception, right? Um, it's like when a movie comes out and then the sequel comes out and it can ruin the original. Like, I don't really care to watch The Matrix, even though I really liked it at the time. It's just sort of best left out of my brain. I just have no time for it. Um, oh. Or The Force Awakens. I think that's probably still a pretty good movie, but I don't really need to go and relive it. Uh, it can work the other way, too. I saw Force Awakens in the theater on opening night, December 2015, okay. and then I took my kid to see it the very next day. So I saw it twice in 24 hours. The thrill of watching a new Star Wars film for the first time in 12 years carries you through. But then you think about it again. Wait a minute. This is the exact same movie as Episode 4, only every aspect of it is not as good as the corresponding scenes in Episode 4. And if Starkiller Base is such a horrifying, galaxy-destroying menace, why do they destroy it in 45 seconds? And why was Gwendolyn Christie given such a big build-up when she's barely in the thing? Sure. And we could nit- we could nitpick Force Awakens all day. I would say that Finn and Ray and Poe are treated very well in that film. They all I th- I loved them all. I thought they were all great new characters. And that's why I don't want to go back and watch it again because I think they all had more or less shit character arcs. I guess Ray turned out pretty unscathed, but well, with Finn, they could not figure out who was supposed to be his love interest in any given movie. When we all knew it was Poe, but right in episode seven, it was Poe. In episode eight, it was uh, Rose. It was Rose. Oh yeah, Kelly Marie Tran's character, and then the fanboys did not like that at all. Yep. 
So J.J. Abrams came in and got rid of all the stuff that outraged the fanboys and made Episode Nine safe for fascists again. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Finn now has his third love interest in as many movies. Four, if you count Ray from the last couple of reels of Force Awakens. And then his love interest becomes who is probably meant to be Lando's daughter, who had been the uh, yeah store the, the uh, kidnapped baby who was turned into a stormtrooper. But they decided not to put that in. So instead, you have Lando talking to her at the end, and it's like an old man creeping on a young girl because they don't they left out the part where that's his daughter. Well, I'm reading Adam Christopher's novel now, Shadow of the Sith, which is a prequel to Episode Nine, The Rise of Skywalker. And I'm reading that book as homework for this podcast, hint, hint. And that goes a lot more into what it's like for Lando to have his daughter kidnapped. And this takes place about a year after she disappears. And he's traveling the galaxy, searching for her and busting heads. And it's very, very good use of Lando, whereas Billy D. Williams was going through the motions in Episode Nine. And he was not playing the 1980s version of Lando at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he was unwell. He, you... you he kind of just looks like a guy sitting on a stool. Well, this is family history. And my grandmother was offered a part in Paul Muni's 1950s film, The Last Angry Man, which was filmed on location in her neighborhood in Brooklyn. And the very young Billy D. Williams plays a teenage juvenile delinquent who intersects with Paul Muni's old man doctor character. My grandmother was offered a part as an extra in the film, and she declined. Paul Muni asked her personally, and she declined. Probably didn't want to be typecast. Wow. But my grandmother could have co-starred in a film with Billy D. Williams. <laughs> wow. And then 25 years later, Empire Strikes Back comes out, and I, I all of a sudden have Empire Strikes Back bedsheets with Billy D. Williams <laughs> on my pillowcase. Then my grandmother was still alive, but... Wow. Uh, I never got to talk. She passed away in 84. Never got to talk to her about this, uh, about yeah. her... Uh, Nearly co-starring in a film, well, I was an uncredited extra co-starring with Billy D. Williams, and then Family Guy, of course, did a clip where Peter is looking for the cool side of the pillow and turns the pillow over, and there's B- Billy D. Williams's face talking as the cool side of the pillow. I literally had the Billy D. Williams pillow <laughs> Billy in 1981 as a child. Hello, Peter. Welcome to the cool side of the pillow. You've had a hard day. Rest that weary head of yours and drift on off to dreamland. Holy cow. I probably didn't. I know I had Star Wars sheets that had the droids on them. I don't think we had Empire. But then I think I'm a little older than you. <laughs> when you're eight years old and you're going to bed on Empire Strikes bed sheets, there is no motivation to go to sleep because you're talking to these characters all night long. Yeah, you know, you're having adventures with the 3PO and R2 because they're right there. Billy D. Williams on the cool side of the pillow. Yep. Luke was in there somewhere. I'm sure. Yeah. So we, we keep managing to not talk about Ark of Infinity. We've got we've gotten into Paul Muni territory. Yep. That's ain't that always the way. I'm, I'm, but I'm not here to. I'm not here to trash Ark of Infinity. I, I, I stand by the fact. Well, here's, here's. This will be a segue for us. Uh, I was anxious to do the to read the novelization because I think the the biggest problems with Ark of Infinity are uh, the visual representation. Uh, the special effects are pretty poor. the uh, The design of the Ergon is pretty poor. Um, um, 
the only thing that really kind of spices it up a bit is they did actually go to Amsterdam, but they don't do anything really there. So it really didn't matter all that much. Um, I also don't care for the music in this era either, but that's, what's interesting because I was in Amsterdam for the first time about five years ago. And the year before that I had been in Paris and I had done the city of death doctor who tour of Paris. And I wanted to do the arc of infinity tour of Amsterdam the following year. There's not enough really an arc of infinity for me to know where I was. It isn't like they went to a well-defined cultural landmark like the Rembrandt Museum or the Anne Frank House yep. or what have you. I wasn't quite sure where I was in the city. And Terrence Dix in the novelization does not – I don't know if he'd ever been to Amsterdam. I'm kind of surprised that he wasn't. But he puts nothing of Amsterdam's geography – he gets the character right. I'll talk about that on the other half of the program. He gets Amsterdam's character, but he doesn't get the geography, which is interesting. You figure that he would want to play this up a little bit, but I think he was so numbed by the script and the rather rote Gallifrey portions because Amsterdam is a much more interesting locale than the Time Lord home planet in this story, which I think is one of the reasons it gets an unfair rap in fandom because this is one of the least interesting depictions of Gallifrey. It's a very sedate planet of coffee shops and storage rooms. Yep. And uh, uh, the IT department, they have their own little hole that they work in, much like my workplace. But uh, <laughs> You at least have cool uh, posters on your wall. You don't well, have this, Star Well, there Wars you go. That's posters. true. Um, I guess my workplace, when I actually bother to go to work. Um, <laughs> but... You reminded me of another thing. Uh, none of that, sort of the blandness of Gallifrey visually does shouldn't show up in a novelization either. Neither should a bunch of people sitting around, like you said, coffee shops, because there are just all these areas where people are sitting around on couches, and it's not clear why. I guess they just needed something in the background, and they didn't want to spend a lot of money, so they just probably took the same outfits that were on the on the council actors in the previous scene and stuck them on extra extras, right? But it's not even interesting furniture. It's this very unique mid-80s plastic <laughs> very furniture. True. It's not even like it isn't even like Gallifrey is populated by stuff from an anthropology catalog. It's more yeah. like, you know. It's just visually not a great story. Here's how bad it is. I watched it and I thought this would be a great ex- uh, prime candidate for CGI effects. So I went and got my DVD off the shelf and looked, and sure enough, uh, they did do CGI effects for this one. And I ripped my DVD like I always do and went to watch it and realized that I had watched the new effects. That's how bad <laughs> the visuals were. <laughs> Is After they were redone, I was like, yeah, these could use some sprucing up. There was only one thing. There's a shot where, where Davison and Sutton come running in from the back of a corridor and a guard near the front towards the camera shoots at them and is supposed to miss. Well, in the original version, he hits Nissa square in the chest and she runs away. But in the, so in the, re, in the fixed version, the CGI effects, he not only misses, but you can see it smolder on the wall for a little bit. Do you get Pluto TV? Yeah. And they have the Doctor Who channel there, which literally is showing classic Who 24 hours a day. So I I discovered belatedly that my cell phone has the Pluto TV app on. I'd never noticed it before. It's like buried in the middle of a screen of apps that I never use. So now once a day, I will turn on Pluto TV and I'll go to the Doctor Who channel. 
and I'll watch the end of whatever episode I'm in the middle of. 1980 style, when you turn on the TV and you get minute 13 of Arc of Infinity Part 2 and you watch through to the end. So I happened to turn on yesterday during a break from work, episode 6 of the animated version of Power of the Daleks. Oh, okay. And it's the last 10 minutes when everybody is killed, and Lesterson, Robert James's character, the mad scientist who resurrects them, is killed by the Daleks, and he's exterminated with the classic extermination effect, but rather than animate Robert James, what I imagine writhing on screen, he stands stock still, does not move, the extermination effect fades, and then 20 seconds later, he drops to the floor dead. <laughs> then the Dalek turns its gun arm on the doctor who's trying to press the button that'll destroy the Dalek's power supply. It fires a beam at the doctor. The doctor ducks in the animation. He's clearly negativized on screen, but then he ducks and he isn't killed. Stands up. Dalek fires again. He's clearly negativized. Should be dead as Lesterson, but he ducks and he survives. It's an odd animation choice because it appears that the doctor has now been exterminated by the Daleks twice in the same episode with no ill effect. Interesting. So are, are they trying to like tr seek to recreate the uh, technical glitches that might have happened on the day? I can't imagine. I think the animator must have been watching Arc of Infinity immediately before he took this contract, and his only frame of reference is when Nissa is shot by a staser pistol and survives because it's a there bad special effect rather than go. a part of the plot. That makes perfect sense now, yeah. So it's the it's the Arc of Infinity editive power of the Daleks. There you go. Yeah. Saying nice things about Arc of Infinity. I like the part two cliffhanger. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I like the part one cliffhanger. Actually, it's a similar cliffhanger. Doctor gets killed. <laughs> and the last 10 minutes of episode 4, the chase through Amsterdam, I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I, was, I must have been 11, I had no idea what Amsterdam was. I only had the dimmest idea. But I thought it was really cool, because you have Omega standing in the market square, smiling at the Punch and Judy puppet show, and he smiles down at a little boy who's enjoying the same... I mean, this is you know, a villain who doesn't... He's not a villain. He wants to just stand in Amsterdam and enjoy you know, a, a puppet show. It's very relatable. And I I also watched the DVD extras where they talked to Johnny Byrne, who compared that scene. He said it, it the um, you know the um, <laughs> inspiration for that was Frankenstein, and he mentions Boris Karloff a couple of times in the actual interview. So yeah, th that scene definitely stuck out to me. I I think that whole chase scene is actually pretty well done. I don't understand why it gets trashed so much. I think there's some really fun stuff in it. There's a scene where uh, Nissa and the doctor come running around a corner and bang into somebody who's carrying a woman carrying a sort of a bag of groceries and a bunch of uh, produce goes spilling out all over the street. And it's hilarious. I rewound it a couple of times because Davison has really got a good comedic instinct. He he bangs into her, says sorry, and then starts to leave and then changes his mind and comes back and starts to help pick up the stuff and then changes his mind again and grabs Nissa and says, sorry, sorry. And they leave. And uh, it's just hilarious. And then I also like the fact that 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 uh, Omega is played by Peter Davison. So you've got Peter Davison chasing Peter Davison. And at some point, Peter Davison gets a, is he's a 
transformed enough. He's got enough Rice Krispies on his face that he they just throw Ian Collier in the makeup so that they can play off of each other in the same shot without having to do any special effect. I think I think it's clever. I thought the I also think it's clever to have a story like this end like this. Um, I'm trying to think of the of a modern example. Oh, I know Solo. This the Star Wars movie Solo ends in a room. You know what I mean? Like it's it's refreshing that not every movie has to be this gigantic battle for the you know future of the universe. This one has that, but it's really just a bunch of people running around Amsterdam. Um. So yeah, I I really like I really like Arc of Infinity. What can I do? I'll give you my confession. I first see Arc in November '84. I watched parts two and part four. Then I would have watched it whenever it was on again. I ended up getting a copy on VHS at some point off air. It wasn't until the DVD came out, probably in the late 2000s, that I realized that Ian Collier actually is playing Omega in Amsterdam for the last five minutes. I thought it was Peter Davison in makeup with split screen effects the whole time. I didn't realize that yep. one shot is Peter Davison in Rice Krispie makeup and the next shot is Ian Collier. I had no idea. Literally, it took me 25 years to get to that realization. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I watched it in... That's when I remember watching it. It was in 2003, and I think I picked up on it. I think... Uh, actually, there's a cool part when he first takes his helmet off, and he has become Peter Davison, and they're facing each other, and there is a split-screen effect, and he's speaking. He's miming. Davison is miming to Ian Collier's voice. It reminds me of a scene from Ghost of Frankenstein that we'll be talking about in about a year because at the end of that movie <laughs> Lon Chaney has to mime to Bela Lugosi's voice for reasons that may or may not interest anyone well you spoiled that in minute two the yeah, bar probably episode. you gave away the ending of the movie so now the next year of my life I'm like that's right there's no suspense in the podcast anymore that's, that's a good point we have to we have to go back and delete that one I don't know or you should make. You should not talk about any future minutes. Bleep it out. If you talk about minute sixty-five and minute two, that takes away the suspense for minute sixty-five. I did last season. So uh, at the beginning of the movie, Son of Frankenstein, near the beginning, uh, the local constable comes to visit Frankenstein and says, "If you ever need help, ring the bell in the tower, and I will come and help you." And so then I did a bit basically for the rest of the season called Bill's Bell Update because I figured it's like Chekhov's gun. <laughs> it's bound to happen at some point. <sighs> and it never does. It never happens. So that's the the final update. Never happened. <sighs> what were we talking about? <laughs> so you, you did a year and a half worth of podcast episodes. Then if each episode is an hour long, you did 80 hours of your no, life no, on no, The Son no. of Frankenstein. No, no. Only the Barsky ones are an hour long. They're usually about <laughs> 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, Barsky conversations go on a lot longer than real life conversations. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Most of my Barsky conversations last for days. It's a, it's on a... Well, that's know. because he's up 22 hours a day <laughs> at the galley <laughs> convention. So. Exactly. Exactly. Like somebody texts me. A galley in February. The panel's about to start. Where are you? I'm like, I'm in Barsky's room. I'll be down in four hours. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Yep. I was trying. We, we were trying to break down the plot of Nope, the Jordan Peele movie, and I picked up a part of the movie that he missed out on. So I was diagramming for him what happens in Nope that he missed. Interesting. I I never finished it. I watched it on a plane, and I never, 
I never went back to it. I didn't see the whole thing. Uh, so don't spoil it. See if I can figure it out. I really liked Get Out, though. Get Out is the best. It's very lean and focused. Nope. It's a Western, so it takes up a lot of space, and there's a lot of open spaces and a lot of contemplative time or dead time where characters are thinking or waiting. It's a lot of slow burn. Okay. But it's also much it's – it's, like, it's like an hour longer than Get Out. It has much less dialogue, even though it's the same actor. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Daniel okay. Kaluuya, who – Daniel Kaluuya had a bit part in Doctor Who's Planet of the Dead. No kidding. A bit part or like an extra? Does he speak? He was one of the characters oh, on, on the, the bus. bus that gets space jacked and winds up on the, uh, the the Jordanian desert in space. And David Tennant talks to him for about five seconds and then goes on to talk to, I think, Michelle Ryan's character because she is wearing a form-fitting leather outfit, whereas Daniel Kaluuya is a young man in a t-shirt. So David Tennant's character, of course, has to ignore him in favor of desperately trying to make Michelle Ryan's career happen. Yeah. Well, we saw how that turned out. She's on Big Finish. Uh, maybe they can get the Daniel, what was his name? Okoye? Kaluuya. Kaluuya. I mean, he's been in some of the biggest movies of the last 10 years. He was in one of the best episodes of Black Mirror. He was in Get Out. He was in Black Panther. I mean, I, I, I don't think he's... a uh, I don't, I don't think he's big finish caliber anymore. Mm. Figures. Not unless they can give him a starring role as guy from bus. I mean, <laughs> we've seen it's we've seen crazier stuff. Well, when I was reading up for this episode, I learned that Colin Baker cameoed as Maxwell in a big finish Gallifrey box set. So, right? That's awesome. I love that. But That's cool. We're running we're running out of time here, so I want to cover two more things quickly. Number one, the novelization. Is this the definitive Terrence Dix novelization? Is it the definitive Terrence Dix novelization, meaning if you want to read a Terrence Dix novelization, this one is the... This is the one you go to. If you know that you were going to be stranded in Amsterdam as the universe is destroyed, and you have time to read one book before Omega goes supernova on the Prinzengracht, is this the book you bring? Oh, my God. You know, um, I guess I'm tempted to say no just because he's did, he did so many other ones, but I don't have one in mind. So, yes, this is the definitive Terrence Dix novelization. He, he took Johnny Burns' script. Did, he must have novelized himself, Terrence, right? A bunch of times, probably. The very next book after this oh, is doctors, the novelization yeah. of The Five Doctors, where Terrence not only novelizes himself, but also makes fun of his own script in places. Oh, that's cool. Well, there you go. So, no. I'm going to go with no now. I changed my answer to no. Well, Barsky will be joining me at some point. I'm doing two weeks' worth of episodes on The Five Doctors, so you'll be able okay. to hear Barsky's take on The Five Doctors. Hey, I can skip that episode. That's fine. I want to give you a chance to redeem yourself because last time you were on, you gave what was at that point the worst 20 questions performance in Doctor Who literature history. But well, That's true, but don't forget, uh, at one point, I was the reigning champion of 20 questions. So it's, you know, swings and roundabouts. When you're the second ever guest to play it, yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> then you get it in 14 hey, or 12 or whatever it was. Yes. I, I beat somebody. But then the chat GPT came along and broke your record of futility. So so did, was the chat GPT an actual guest on your podcast? 
Leland Stoll from the Indoctrination Podcast programmed Chat GPT with the Doctor Who program guide, 1963 to 22, and he had Chat GPT try and guess the story. But it wasn't smart enough to know. It would ask a question. It would rule out a whole bunch of stories. And then it would ask a question about the story that it just ruled out through its own question. Okay. that's There's something wrong there then. So we are now going to play 20 Questions. That sound of the theme song can only mean one thing. It's time for 20 questions. Do you have a do you have a, a, a sponsor? Who's sponsoring 20 questions? Well, you just did a very good Graham Burke impersonation from Gallery of the Underrated. So I'm gonna say Bill Evenson's Graham Burke impression is the official sponsor of 20 questions. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Perfect. I was there at the live reality bomb in New York City last year for episode 100, where they tried to call you from the stage and you didn't answer your cell phone. Yep. Uh, it, it was also, if, as, if that was funny in person, I'm glad, but it was pretty funny here too, because I was racing around the house showing my wife my phone going, it won't let me pick up. It won't let me. Yeah, it's a great phone. You then immediately go on Facebook and comment about how your phone doesn't let you answer incoming calls. And I immediately responded, don't check your voicemail. Because <laughs> yeah. Graham left you one. He did. He certainly did. Yes. And I did check it. So I am one Doctor Who story selected at random from the archives. You have 20 yes or no questions to guess who I am. What is your first question? Um... Did your did you air? I'm not going to do that thing where I guess a story in the first guess because I think we're, we're we we both know I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not high caliber where this game's concerned. So I'm just trying to get through it. Uh, do you air after Logopolis? No, I do not air after Logopolis. <laughs> So you have ruled out 1980 through through 2022. That's pretty good. You've only left yourself with about 20 years on the calendar. 19 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Question two. Uh, are you in black and white? No, I am not in black and white. Question three. So you're not, you're, now you all you have left is 1970 to 1981. You're doing much better than you did last time. Yes. Well, I don't know. Last time I think I kept, I, I did like a chat GPT and asked questions that weren't even, uh, didn't make any <laughs> sense. Um, okay. Do you feature the fourth doctor? No, I do not feature the fourth doctor. So now question four, you have narrowed it down to just five seasons. And if, unless you go last time when you were asking questions about Star Trek Voyager on a Doctor Who 20 questions game, you're guaranteed to get it. So question four. I'm guaranteed to get it? I don't know. I can still screw this up. Um, do you feature the Daleks? No, I do not feature uh, the Daleks. That's a bad move. Do you feature Joe Grant? Yes, I do feature Joe Grant. So now I think we're at question six. 
You're not going to get the record, but you're very close. It is somewhere between seasons 8 and 10, and that eliminates two Dalek stories. All right, I thought of a question I shouldn't ask, which is do you feature the master? Because that really wouldn't uh, narrow it down too much in seasons 8 through 10. So is that a question or not? No, I'm going to go with that's not a question. Do you take place on Earth? My story contains scenes set on planet Earth. I'm going to answer that question literally. Mm. Question seven. Are you Planet of the Spiders? See, that's your chat GPT moment. We've already ruled out non-Joe Grant stories. Oh, I Planet of the Spiders a is a non-Joe story. Grant story. <laughs> so I am not Planet of the Spiders. Oh. <laughs> Question eight, I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Okay. So it wouldn't be. Hmm. See, I'm going to need to see a list. Can I? Can I consult a list? Let's go to the fact machine. <laughs> and we are back from the fact machine. Bill, are you ready for your next question? I am ready for my next question. Which is? <laughs> um, I, I said I was, I was ready, and then I, and now I'm having second thoughts. Are you the three doctors? I am not. The three doctors, although next week I will be the five doctors, but no, for purpose of 20 questions, I am not the three doctors. Question nine. Were you written by Malcolm Hulk? Yes, I was written by Malcolm Hulk. And wow. you now have fewer choices remaining than questions left, so you're guaranteed, unless you make another spectacular Planet of the Spiders-esque wrong turn, <laughs> you're guaranteed uh, to get it. Okay. Um, the problem is I can't remember some of these. Uh, um, well, you go down the written by column and look for Malcolm yeah. Hall's name and just go in chronological order. Are you Colony in Space? Yes, I am okay. Colony in Space. <laughs> Good advice, going in chronological order. <laughs> well, you needed a little bit of help, but you got over the finish line much more efficiently than last time. And more importantly, you beat the chat GPT. That's right. It's a... In your face, in your monitor, I don't know, in your whatever the equivalent of a face is. In your silicon chip, in your algorithm. In your algorithm. See, I didn't even get to my notes. Should, should I read them now? Read you my read notes? Read your notes out verbatim, and then I'll make some interesting uh, humming noises as you, as you hit a salient point or not. All right. Uh, in, the, uh, in the part, I only have two things. In the parts where... Uh, Characters flicker from positive to negative. I like that uh, Terrence Dix describes it as flickering, flickering from positive to negative. I just think that's that's a brilliant example of Terrence Dix going, they'll know what I mean. <laughs> that's an example of his very, very, very um, precise, efficient way, economical way of writing. Yes, exactly. He doesn't drown you in syllables. Yep. Lance Parkin was talking once on Records Doctor Who decades ago about submitting a draft for a novel to BBC Books. And the only note that he was given is, instead of saying the room was bathed in an amber light, can't you say the room was suffused in an ochre glow? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
Yikes. No wonder I don't read BBC books. Um, <laughs> no, I read some of them. I liked. Doesn't matter. Uh, and there's also a part that I like in the better in the chase scene in the novelization than in the in the episode. Uh, there's a part where they've they've they keep losing Omega while they're trying to chase him, and at one point uh, the doctor calls out, "I see you, Omega," and then they cut to Omega who's standing not quite behind the uh, building, and he l- just looks at them, and then uh, Nissa goes, "He's right there," and then they go chasing <laughs> after him. Or in the novel, first of all. Dix writes, I see you, Omega, he called quite untruthfully, which I think is a good sentence. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then I can't remember. I didn't write it all down, but he, he, he indicates that they see him then running away as if he calls out, I see you, Omega. And then he starts to run because he assumes that he can see him. Whereas in the show, nothing happens at all. So that's one improvement. <laughs> that's my those are my notes. All right, and that's uh, Bill Evanson's notes brought to you by Bill Evanson, sponsored by Reality Bombs Gallery of the Underrated. That's right. Maybe I'll get to do Arc of Infinity. I wonder if they've done Arc of Infinity yet. I brought the Crotons to Gallery of the Underrated. I don't know if anybody's done Arc of Infinity. I don't have a spreadsheet of Gallery of the Underrateds. I, I was given my story. Were you given yours? I was asked. This was an. This was early. I did mine in 2015, which is still early days for Reality Bomb. Yeah. So I was just said. He said, "What do you want?" I'm like, I'll take the Crotons. <laughs> I was given either Doctor Who and the Daleks or Dalek Invasion 2150 AD. I can't remember. But I was like, "Well, that's the easy Peter Cushing. Those are great. Yeah. yeah. Those are beloved in the UK, where they were a staple of programming. Not so much over here." <laughs> You still see them though. They're actually they'll be on like broadcast channels here, not often, but sometimes. We cut the cable cord a while back, so we get Pluto TV and the occasional Sling channel. But okay. I'm no longer watching much terrestrial television. We have an antenna, so yeah. So, all right. If one of us brings. Arc of Infinity to Gallery of the Underrated. I will cross-post the link here so you can check that out Excellent. on Reality Bomb. Excellent. All right, Bill, thanks so much. This was a this was a pleasure, and we've talked about everything but Arc of Infinity. We have talked about topics that my UK-based audience probably will not have a clue on, but that's that's the magic of us. That's right. That's right. That's what we're here to do, annoy people. <laughs> Doctor Who, Arc of Infinity, by Terence Dix, teleplay by Johnny Byrne, televised in January 1983, paperback release date October 20th, 1983, target book number 80. When the Doctor returns to Gallifrey, he learns that his biodata extract has been stolen from the Time Lord's master computer known as the Matrix. The biodata extract is a detailed description of the doctor's molecular structure, and this information in the wrong hands could be exploited with disastrous effect. The Gallifreyan High Council believe that antimatter will be infiltrated into the universe as a result of the theft. In order to render the information useless, they decide the doctor must die. Karina Longworth is back, baby.
Karina is, in case you missed it, the writer, narrator, and producer of You Must Remember This podcast. Ms. Longworth and I have never met, and she is, last I heard, happily married to film director Ryan Johnson, but she is also, in another sense, the voice of my dreams. Since I first discovered You Must Remember This several years ago, I have been entranced by her encyclopedic knowledge of the secrets and or forgotten lives of Hollywood's first century, and have been truly, madly, deeply, 1930s screwball comedy-style head-over-heels in love with her voice. Long-time listeners of this podcast have heard me quote her many, many times, and of course, any time I enunciate the T in the center of a word, there, I did it just now, I'm doing it because that's what Karina does. As I record this in mid-June 2023, Karina, who sadly no longer does, you must remember this on a weekly basis, is in the middle of one of her biannual or so seasons, this time erotic 90s, Sorry, I'll say it the way she says it, erotic 90s, doing a deep dive exploration into how issues of sexuality were explored by Hollywood and or indie filmmakers in that decade. I was very excited for her episode about Thelma and Louise, which came about six weeks ago or so as I record this. What I found interesting was that she spent very little time on the movie itself, but spent more time reading from, dissecting, and mostly harshing on, contemporary critiques of that movie, mostly from right-leaning columnists or publications like Time Magazine or Playboy's Asa Baber. I was in college in the early 90s when Thelma and Louise came out, and one can reasonably assume that I may have had occasion to read the words of Mr. Baber. Read it for the articles, you know. Karina is right. What does Playboy need with a column dedicated to the emotional needs of men? Isn't that like the sole purpose of every other page in Playboy? Anyway, of course, this is all strictly theoretical. The subscription in our college apartment belonged to my roommate, not me. The point is, even a critic as widely read and knowledgeable and soulful as Karina Longworth can sometimes spend a bit too much of her time reacting to what other people wrote. I, too, have been guilty of this, the Doctor Who Ratings Guide, to which I started contributing in the late 90s under its original editor, and then with much greater frequency between 1999 and very, very recently, well, now, under its longtime editor and frequent guest of this podcast, Stacy Smith Question Mark, the question mark is part of her name, Ratings Guide reviews often describe not just the TV story or book or audio under review, but also react to other reviews posted earlier about the same subject. So, when I went to pull my review of the Ark of Infinity novelization, which I submitted about five years ago, to form the core of my audio essay this week, I noticed that most of it was dedicated to taking apart, Karina Longworth style, the only other review of that book on the ratings guide. The previous reviewer, whose name I will not mention here, named the review, quote, not as good as the title, so I named my review, which appears directly under theirs, not as bad as the episode. I'll omit my Karina-style mocking recap of Ark of Infinity, the TV episode itself. Bill and I already did uh, quite a breakdown of the TV story earlier in the hour, but I will preserve most of the rest of my ratings guide review, because I think the previous reviewer's words are well worth dissection. I'm sure that either reviewer is a good soul, beloved by children and puppies, and a pillar of their community. 
but I cannot read their review of Terence's novelization of Ark of Infinity and accept that they actually read the book. My only conclusion is that they were missing a great story. Check this out. The prior reviewer writes, quote, The novelization falls within Terence Dix's script-to-book category. In fact, it's almost embarrassing to call this a book at all. It's basically a translated script of what was seen on screen, with no additions or expansions whatsoever. In fact, Dix hasn't even bothered to add any real descriptions beyond what is minimally necessary. Exactly none of that statement in the earlier review is true. If you are a recent listener to this podcast, or as my listeners are more recently called by one crank on Apple Podcast Reviews, ghastly woke zombie nation, you may have missed a lot of my earlier work on Terrence. In a sense, this whole podcast exists because of the other fellow's review of Ark of Infinity. I think the long-standing conventional wisdom on Terrence, so much of which is encapsulated in the paragraph cited above, is wrong. I spent much of the first 15 months of this show, until I reached the point in the target line where Terence was no longer writing the majority of the books, trying to undo that wisdom. So no, the novelization of Ark of Infinity does not merely fall into Terence's script-to-book category. I mean, you could believe that, but you'd have to ignore almost everything in the book in order to draw that conclusion. Now, what I'm not saying is that this is Terence's magnum opus. In some respects, yes, the book is formulaic and rote. Terence wrote more than 60 novelizations, and this one is probably in the bottom half of his efforts, giving away the surprise Omega reveal from the Part 3 cliffhanger right there in the table of contents even before page 1 is a mistake. Then yes, unlike most targets, this one begins on page 1 rather than page 7. And it ends on page 117, on the lower end of Terence's usual page counts. But at the same time, let's be honest, isn't Johnny Burns' TV script a little bit formulaic, a little bit rote? Doesn't that almost put any writer behind the eight ball when they get commissioned to novelize the script? Look at Burns' cast of zero-dimensional Time Lord counselors, I mean. Barusa is here in by far the least interesting of his four TV appearances. Zorak and Thalia, I can never remember how to pronounce that, get nothing to do on screen and have exactly zero good lines between them. They're clearly just Luvik and Katura carried over from the Keeper of Trocken. Similar names, similar lack of dimension, virtually no plot utility, but at least in Trocken, Luvik and Katora had something to do in Part 4, beyond fetching pulse loops, that is. Damon, the Doctor's TARDIS must leave undetected. Isn't there any way of distracting Omega? I've already tested the bypass procedures. Omega has cut us off. A pulse loop, Lord President. Of course! Fetch it, Damon. Thalia, prepare the metric terminal. Um, a, a pulse loop? No, a simple device to trace faults on the master circuits. It has a photon pulse. Omega will have to track it down to confirm that we're not trying to bypass the Matrix control. And in the confusion, it will allow the Doctor's TARDIS to leave undetected. And in my household, that 30-second scene is referred to as death by exposition. In Ark of Infinity, Zorak and Thalia remain meaningless throughout, so this can't have been a very 
interesting story to novelize, especially with scenes like the one just played. Terence, however, does his best with the meager offerings, getting off his trademark one-sentence descriptions of meaningless tertiary characters. Zorak, quote, was dark and thin-faced and always seemed aggrieved. That's a much more interesting description of Zorak than Max Harvey achieved in the role on television, that's for sure. Terence also has Nyssa compare the Time Lord's robes to, quote, rare exotic birds, which I doubt is a line borrowed from Johnny Burns' stage directions. I'm less fond of his referring to Thalia as handsome, twice, but hey, Terence has to describe her somehow. So all Terence can do with the Gallifrey plot is add continuity references to spice up the prose. Who better to write Gallifrey and continuity, circa 1983, than Terence? Remember, he literally co-created these guys. Terence throws in a reference to the invasion of time, adding details about the Time Lord's past that Byrne might not even have known. Then when Terence drops in recollections of only his previous villainy in The Three Doctors, remember that Terence literally commissioned that earlier story and wrote its book. Omega is at least interesting in that he's not really a villain per se, and he's one of the few Doctor Who villains who actually mourns the death of his accomplice, his stooge, his toady, Hedden. And Terence is the one who adds a backstory for Hedden and explains exactly why Hedden has gone over to Omega's side to begin with. You wouldn't find that on TV. Terence has even more fun off Gallifrey, writing the Amsterdam half of the story with one tongue firmly planted in cheek. He refers to its, quote, tolerant citizens, ignoring the appearance of the TARDIS. And check out this passage, which completely explodes the criticisms raised in the other Ratings Guide review of the Ark of Infinity novelization. Quote, wearing jeans and anorak, loaded down with a great bulging pack like a turtle, carrying his own home, Robin Stewart looked exactly like all the other young people who spend their summers wandering around Europe. There aren't quite so many of them these days. Some of the big capital cities have become cold and unwelcoming, but not friendly old Amsterdam. The Dutch are a tolerant people, willing to turn a blind eye to such crimes as being young and hard up. That's a terrific addition, a terrific expansion, of the sort which the earlier review accuses the book of not having. The Amsterdam Youth Hostel featured in the story is described by Terence as, quote, a clean, well-lighted place. There is a nice literary callback, taking a Hemingway short story title and sneakily working it into the prose. I'm reminded of Terence working Shakespeare's happy band of brothers phrase into the power of Kroll novelization. And once again, we are putting the literature in Doctor Who literature. Terence also has a remarkable capacity to take nothing moments on TV and spin them into tense chapter endings, little cliffhangers. I'll talk about this a little more when I come to his novelization of Snake Dance, the next TV story, although not the next book, after Ark of Infinity. But Terence ends chapter one here with Colin Fraser having misgivings about spending the night in an Amsterdam crypt. Quote, Colin had seen horror movies about young people spending the night in graveyards and haunted houses. Something always happened to them, something frightful. Telling himself he was being silly, Colin got on with his preparations for the night, unaware that this particular crypt held terrors beyond his worst imaginings. That's not a moment from TV. 
not something Terence could have just adapted from the script or stage directions. That is creating a page-turning chapter ending from what on TV was probably just a meaningless reaction shot. Nicely done, Terence. Now there's plenty of room for improvement had there been time to write and had there been a higher allotted page count. Terence, and I think Bill and I talked about this earlier, doesn't do much with Amsterdam's geography. He does not, for example, name any of the streets or most of the landmarks. He doesn't give the reader the sense that he's actually been there. But at least there's humor. Tegan realizes that her cousin Robin has been possessed by Omega because he's able to operate a computer, where at home he, quote, couldn't so much as change a light bulb without making a mess of it. Oh, snap. All right, Terence wrote many epic novelizations. At his best, they were a few better with painting the word picture. And at his worst, he still gets off memorable asides or phrases to keep the book moving. Arc of Infinity is far from his best book, but it's certainly not guilty of the crimes of which the original ratings guide reviewer of the novelization accused it. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, this is it. My first two-part episode. We are devoting two entire weeks to target book number 81, and because we are now at the end of the 1982-1983 cycle, with the release of book 81, we'll be having a bonus episode that will tie in a little bit to the five doctors as well. So the next three weeks of this podcast are going to be a five doctors celebration, the 20th anniversary story. I am going to have, at this time, I have not recorded everything yet, but I'm going to have a total of six guests over the next three episodes, three familiar returning voices, and three hard-hitting first-time guests to this program. We're going to explore the book. We are going to explore some of the performers who were seen on television in The Five Doctors via first-hand information. We are going to have a panel discussion as to whether or not Five Doctors is the greatest TV story of them all. I think the jury is very much still out on that question. And we're going to talk to a Doctor Who fan turned best-selling author. So you are not going to want to miss any of the next three weeks. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcatcher of choice if you have not already done so. If you have room on your phone, please auto-download the episodes so you do not miss any of my customary Sunday morning releases. And to quote Karina once more, If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way you can. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by Dave Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, Bill Evenson, of the Frankenstein Minute Podcast. Oh, wait. Bill, 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 come back here. Got another question for you. In the unlikely event after this week that I am a guest on the Frankenstein Minute, if I am covering a movie that I have not seen, 
would you recommend that I watch the entire film or should I only watch the single minute out of context that I'm on the podcast to discuss without any clue as to what the rest of the movie is about? I actually have an answer for this. Uh, no question. Don't watch the whole movie because um, I get a lot of insight because I'll, I'll load up my, uh, you know, my minutes on my app. That's called Plex, if you know what that is, that I can stream from my, my computer to anywhere in the house. And I'll sit and watch them, and I'll watch them with my wife, who hasn't seen these movies. And I, she'll give uh, almost always give me some great insight because she has no idea what's going on. She'll be like, "Well, who the hell is that?" And I'll go, "I don't know." You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why he did that. Good question. You know. So yeah, there's your answer. All right, Bill. Thanks again. <laughs> Have a great night. You too. And that was the real Bill Evenson. Billy D. Williams' voice was a guest impersonation, courtesy of Family Guy. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's drwholiterature, at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Good night. Doctor Who Podcast Network.